Thank you, Kelsey. You know, one of our great pastimes here in America is to go to the beach, especially if you live along the coastal areas like we do, right? Warm summer day, you love to pack up some stuff, head off to the beach, and inevitably when you go to the beach, one of the things you're going to see if you take a long stroll is you're going to see somebody building a sandcastle, or you're going to see what they at one point built as a sandcastle, right? It's just one of those things you do, right? People enjoy making those kinds of things, and sometimes they get really quite elaborate, don't they? Big structures, they build these big moats around them, they do all kinds of things to try to protect them, but when the, when the builder leaves the beach, there's a thought that sticks in their mind. Despite, no matter how hard I try, at some point in time, this castle's getting, gonna get washed away, right? The, the tide's gonna rise, it's gonna wash the castle away. Build a way back up the beach, some point in time, there's gonna be a storm, the surge is gonna come, it's gonna wash the castle away. Some of us, we have that same kind of feeling when we get to moments in our lives and we make genuine, real, spiritual commitments. We did that a few weeks ago, a number of us, as we concluded a series about asking God to do some things in our lives that we've never let Him do before, to allow God to do some things through our lives that we've never let Him do before. We, we drew a line in the sand, if you will, and said, I'm going to ask God to do these things and my life is going to be different. But as many of us left here that morning, we, we know that somehow or another the, the tide of life is going to rise, right? And it's going to try to wash that line in the sand away. You know, and even if we make it deep and we make it strong, we, we, we have the sense that somewhere along the line the storm surge of life is going to come and begin to kind of wash it away. And really, unfortunately, we can even turn to the Scriptures and, and we get reinforcements on that expectation. The people in the days of Joshua, when he was ready to walk off the scene of, of uh, divine history, you know, he, he stood before the people and said, you need to choose today whom you're going to serve. And they said, we're going to serve God. You know, we're going to serve God with all of our heart. And what happened? The storm surge of life came and washed away that resolve. And within a generation or two, they're rebelling against God, and God is needing to bring discipline. And we, we have the era of the judges that sets in. And then all through the period of the morning, we, there's a lot of reinforcements to say, you know what? We, I know we're, we're, we're committed today as we're ever going to be to making these changes, to allowing God to do these things in our lives, but somehow or another we're aware of the fact that somewhere down the line it's going to want to all be washed away. But I want to remind you this morning that we do have examples in the Scriptures where that line in the sand never gets washed away. Remember a guy by the name of Enoch? Right? Walked with God. And walked with God. And walked with God. And walked with God. Never crossed, but never washed the way the line in the sand, and God took him home. Remember a name, guy by the name of Elisha? Right? Had a few moments of spiritual fatigue in there. But he drew a line in the sand and he never turned back. And God took him into heaven with chariots of fire. You look at the 11 apostles. Certainly Judas is one who gives us reinforcement that you know, no matter how dedicated we are, how intrigued we are, how much sacrifice we made to follow after Christ, there's always that place where we feel like the line's just going to get washed away. But you look at the other 11, 
And there's truth that comes to us that the line doesn't have to be washed away. What, what does it take to draw a line in the sand and never turn back as we make spiritual commitment? We've, we've been trying to ask ourselves that question as a result of these commitments that we've made so that they're not just things that kind of pass through and we realize that in a short period of time things are kind of go back to the way they were, but we really have a sense that this is going to stick. And we've been using the phrase of, what does it take to stay in the race and keep the pace? Many of us, maybe virtually all of us who have been a part of this journey these last six to eight weeks as we've been thinking about what does it really mean to allow God to do greater things in our lives so that Christ can continue to glorify the Father even through heaven, from heaven. You know, we've been wrestling through these things and we've, we've made a very specific commitment to ask God to do some things in our lives. What does it take to sustain that commitment? To stay in the race and to keep the pace. Now, this is a sermon we started last week. And this is just part two. Just one, two, three, four, five, six. We're going to part points four, five, and six today. And I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi with me again. The book of Malachi, if you're using your own Bible, is the very last book in the Old Testament, just before the book of Matthew. For those of you who are using our Pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 809. We're going to start with chapter 3. I want to remind you about why this particular period of time is, is such a great time for us to look at. Okay? Malachi, and it's very fitting that God gave this prophet the name Malachi because it needs, means my messenger. So if there was ever a word, you know, as Malachi's walking around the city of Jerusalem, and they're saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm Joe. What's your name? He says, my name's Malachi. It means my messenger. You know, he was born for this role, even though it wasn't a professional role for him. As far as we can tell, he, he lived and worked just like everybody else. And yet, for a short season, God raised him up to proclaim a word to the people. Again, just a little context helps us. You remember that God brought the people into the promised land and established the nation of Israel there. Eventually, it split into two kingdoms, the northern one being the nation of Israel, the southern one being the, the nation of Judah. In the 900s B.C., the nation of Israel was rebellious against God. He sent them into exile underneath, underneath the hands of the Assyrians, and they never came back to the land. And they're referred to as the ten lost tribes of the nation of Israel. The southern nation, Judah, continued on living in the land and until, until the 500 B.C.s. In the 587, again, through their rebellion, God brought discipline on them. He, he, he fulfilled the prophecy that he made that if they had not returned to them, he's going to send them into exile. And that happened at the hands of the Babylonians in 587 B.C. But God said he would bring the people back to the land, and he honored that prayer that commitment, that prophecy in 537 B.C. when God raised up the Persian Empire underneath, of, underneath King Cyrus and they conquered the Babylonians and he allowed the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem. And back they went. They, they were full of spiritual adrenaline. You know, they're, they're going back to the city of God. They're going back to Mount Zion. You know, and they get back there and to the best of their abilities, they... They, they build a temple. It's not like Solomon's temple. You know, it's, it's just kind of a poor replica, but, but it serves a purpose. And, and the, the altar of sacrifice is, is, is uh, 
consecrated again and they're ready to, to use it. And once again, sacrifices are being offered up and it's, it's carrying the praise of God's people, the sweet aroma of their faithfulness and the smoke that's rising into the nostrils of God. And, and they're just full of expectation. And, and they've drawn a land in the sand and they've moved back to God. But, you know, time has a way of eating away at that line in the sand. And by the time we get to Malachi's time, they've been in the land almost 100 years. And life's hard. There's been no real return of the, the glory of God and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's get up every day and walk with God. Get up every day and walk with God. It's hard. The economy's hard. Tough to make a living. The nations around them are being oppressive. And, 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 and they just can't catch a break. And, and they're really questioning where's God. And what's God up to? And that line in the sand that they had drawn, to live as the people of God, it's beginning to be eroded away. And it's gone. And God steps into their lives in the form of Malachi. And he brings them a word. We started looking at this word last week. Now, I want you to appreciate the significance of this. When Malachi gets done talking, when you get to... When you get to uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, the voice of God goes silent for 450 years until John the Baptist shows up. This is the last word you get for 450 years. Okay? God shows up and he speaks to them. And we've already looked at three things about what does it really take to stay in the, stay in the race and keep the pace. And I'm just going to do a quick review for those of you who weren't last, here last week. You, you, any of you, you can go on our website and you can listen to the entire message. Just go to hopechapelsterling.org and click on the sermons button, which is to the right, and it'll take you right there. And these sermons will be right at the top of the list. There's, there's dozens of messages on that site that you can listen to, but these will be right at the top, and you can listen to this. But just, just a bit of review. Malachi accuses the people of calling God Father and calling Him Master. But he said, you know, it's all just lip service. You know, you can talk the talk, but you're not walking the walk because all you're really doing is you're, you're calling him God, you're calling him Lord, you're calling him Heavenly Father, but there's no honor at all. He said, you know, and, and part of what it really takes for you and I to get to our, uh, ourselves in a place where we make a decision, we make a commitment to Christ, and we live it out day by day, day by day, day by day, day by day, and it just keeps going, and we maintain that resolve, that commitment. Is We have to understand that what we're really doing is dealing with God. You know, we, we, we often have this idea that, you know, that, that God's just kind of happy to take what we can get. I've used the illustration here in your outline of, you know, we have to understand that because we're dealing with God, we're, we're in a standing army, a regular army. We're not a volunteer militia. You know, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a standing army, regular army, I mean, you're enlisted. And, and you've got to be where you're supposed to be, or that's called being AWOL. And they arrest you, they put you in jail. And if you're in the line of duty, you know, out in battle, and you turn and run, they call that desertion, and they shoot you for that. Voluntary militia, they're kind of like, well, you know what? It's harvest time. I think we're going home now. And the general, general can't stop you. Because you're just a volunteer. We, we often think that in our relationship with God, we're, we're volunteers, and he's just happy to get what he can get out of us. I know God says I'm supposed to study to show myself a workman approved of the word of God, but, well, I don't like to read. So, God, you know, what else you got? Well, how about pray at all times? Well, you know, I'm more of a doer than a prayer, so what else you got? Well, turn the other cheek. 
yeah, I'm more of a you know left hook guy. So yeah, let's put that one. You know, we and we we just think we can just kind of pick and choose. But when God shows up and starts talking about blessing us and making us happy and filling us with joy, we'll say, sign me up. You know, we got, we got to realize we're dealing with God or we're never going to sustain spiritual commitment. We're not going to stay in the rest. Secondly, we've got to give God our best. We've got to give God our best. You know, when we come to our relationship with God, we have to bring the same passion, the same entrepreneurial spirit, the same ingenuity, the same commitment, the same dedication that we take in anything that we excel at. We, we can't just kind of give God what's left over after we get done doing everything else. We have to give God our best or we're never going to sustain spiritual commitment. And, and we've got to excel at what I call the always things. And I, I base this, these statements out of, of God's condemnation of the people for their treatment of their, of their, of their wives. The men were, were divorcing their older Jewish wives and marrying younger women from the countries that are around them, these pagan women, to use the prophet's terms. And God's looking at that and saying, you know, if you hate like that, there's nothing I can do for you. And the people are complaining, God, you know, you promised, you made promises to us, and you made a covenant with us, and you're not keeping your end of the bargain. And God's, God's basically saying, you know what? When you don't excel at the always things, I can't fulfill that promise. Let me give you an example. Let's use the issue of divorce. I mean, of marriage. God, God, God's, you, we're reaching out to God and saying, God, you promised to bless me. Okay? And, and we expect you to keep your covenant. So one of the blessings God wants to give us is a great marriage. But if we're ignoring our marriage, we're abusing that relationship, we're not paying attention to it, we can't experience the blessing, right? So when we are not faithful in our covenant responsibilities, God can't pour his covenant faithfulness into us because we're just not in a position to do that. And so the things that we just really have to be what, you know, careful with is, is we have to really be faithful in the always things so that God can fulfill his promises to us. And those always things have to do with our character, in other words, our faithfulness to ourselves, our faithfulness in our relationships with other people, and our faithfulness to God. And so, with that, we come to the second half of this message. Uh, I got three points I want to share with you today, I think, that speak to us from chapters two, uh, 3 and 4 from the book of Malachi. Again, if you have not read through the book, I encourage you to do that. It's, it's only four chapters. It's like 56 verses or something. It won't take you more than 20 minutes to read the whole book sometimes. Just sit down and read it and absorb it all in, in one one um, sitting and, and, and really let God use that. And I just want to begin with the beginning of chapter 3. The people have been asking for God to show up. They're looking at their temple and they say, you know, the last one under Solomon, man, we've heard stories, it was gorgeous. I said, but this one, it, it doesn't impress anybody. But that would change if God showed up in his glory like he did in the days of Solomon. So they're asking for God to show up. And here's what God says in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to the temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God, God says that he's going to show up. 
He's going to send his messenger, and then the messenger of the covenant is going to show up. From this side of the cross, looking back at the way God unfolded this, we, we recognize that this is a messianic prophecy that speaks about the coming of John the Baptist, and then after that, the coming of Christ, who came to the temple and brought the new covenant. But he goes on to say, but you're thinking about this, and you think that's going to be a great day, but here's God's question. Who's going to be able to endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he'll be like a refiner's fire and like cleansing lye or soap. He will be a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. I'll come to you in judgment. And I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and cheat the wage earner, and against those who deny justice to the foreigner. They do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, because I, Yahweh, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. And that last statement is saying the only reason the nation of Judah still lives and, and survives is because God is gracious and his nature doesn't change. This is a heavy passage. Speaks about the coming of the Messiah and what's going to happen as a result of all of that, and et cetera. There's tremendous words of, of judgment in here, and that's something we as believers often feel uncomfortable with. We think a lot about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and being born again and all the, the pieces that go with that. But we also have to understand that Jesus said, you know what? The one who hasn't believed in me has been judged already. Judgment is a part of the message of the gospel. But when you look at this passage, what God was trying to say to the people in the times of Jesus is, you know what, you're praying for me to show up, but you don't know what you're going to get. You, you, you don't even know what you're asking for. He says, because when I show up, things are going to change. Things are going to change. So I'm going to come in like a, like a, like a refining fire. I'm going to come in like a cleansing soap, and, 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 and everything's just going to get changed. You know, I, I've seen the power of fire. I, I've told a little bit of this story before, but before Christina and I moved to Sterling, we were pastoring a church down in, in the South Shore in Hanover, Mass. And, and much like Hope Chapel, we, I went to this church as a church plant, and we had grown a little bit. We bought some land, and we were able to build a small facility. It was only 5,000 square feet. It's about the size of this center section of our building. Just, it's just a little smaller than this. But it, it, it was what a gift to have after meeting in a school for three and a half years. You know? And so, and we were growing and thriving, and great things were happening. And, and it was in November of uh, 1992, and Christina and I were away to a meeting of the Baptist Convention of New England, and we were staying down in Providence, and, and we woke up on a Friday morning to the phone ringing. It was one of the people in our church, and she says, you really should turn on the television and watch the news. I said, okay. So I, I put the, you know, we hung up, and I turned the TV on, and literally the first image that came up was a picture of our church facility with flames going through the roof. Somebody had broken into our building early on, Early on Friday morning, maybe 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, had broken down the door, moved in, and poured 
An accelerant all over the altar area and it just lit it on fire and left. And much like when we built here, we didn't have enough money to do everything and we weren't required to do sprinklers because we couldn't because it was small enough and we couldn't afford them, so we didn't do them. And so when we got done, almost the entire building was gone. It, it, I mean, there was a little bit of a section on one end. We were able to kind of save some of the structure and just kind of tear down the sheetrock and kind of do stuff over again. But by and large, it was just gone. Imagine just like all of this section all the way out to kind of the lobby, just totally gone. You know, and I, I remember walking through the, through the rubble, right? And, and it, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just an, it's like an ash mud. Right? You know, they're, they're spraying water on it, trying to get everything out. So you're walking on the slab, and it's just, it's just ash, like, this deep, and it's just all wet and mushy. And the only things that survived the fire in the sanctuary area were, one, were the, the ends that we have of these, of these really heavy pews that we had. We, the Catholic church in town was in the middle of remodeling. They were expanding their sanctuary, and they were going to different seating. So they let us have all their old pews, which were really just a form of, punishment here on earth. They <laughs> were really hard to sit in, you know. I mean, you guys have it great in those chairs, right? But, you know, it was either that or folding chairs. So, we, we, you know, so, you know, we're down there like at 8 o'clock at night, you know, mo- carrying the pews out of the, out of the, uh, the sanctuary of the, of the uh, Catholic Church. It looked like the Baptists were stealing stuff from the Catholics as we're, we're loading them up in the trailers. But, you know, and all the seat backs and the seat bottoms were totally gone, but the, the ends, which were just this really thick wood, they were charred in about an inch on each side, but the middle, the middle section of it didn't burn. And then, really, the only other thing that was left was sitting where, where our, our baby grand piano had been. It was entirely gone, a few pieces of ivory, and just the metal frame that all the wires had gone. And then, and you just see the power of fire. I mean, it changed everything. Changed everything. And part of our difficulty, we're, we're, we're asking God to show up in our lives. We're, we're, we're laying our prayer, because God, you know, do things in me that I've never let you do before. God, do things through me that I've never let you do before. We're, we're, we're laying our life, we're inviting God in. But if we're not ready to embrace change, we're not going to sustain commitment. We're not going to stay in a race. You know, Paul used the imagery of says, you know what, you've got, you got to put off the old self and you've got to put on the new self. For many of us, this is the way we think of that. If we're honest, is, you know, okay, God, you can change the socks, but I'm keeping everything else. Okay, you, you want blue socks today? I'll take off the browns, I'll put blues on. That, putting off, putting on. That's, that's the way most of We want just a little bit of change. Or we say, you know what, God, you can make me a little thinner if you want. You know, and we, 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 we identify the things, but God shows up and says, you know, I think the middle-aged, middle-class wardrobe thing, I think, let's get rid of that. Let's think punk rock, you know. Let, let's get some leather skinny jeans, and let's get, you know, some piercings and maybe some tattoos, and, you know, and we're thinking, no, 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 I don't want that. You know, but I got to tell you, if we're really going to invite God in, and we're going to stay in the race and keep the pace, we have to be ready to embrace change. You have to be ready to embrace change. And the biggest challenge for most of us is just releasing that control of that change to God. We say, okay, God, you can fix this part of me, but I don't really want to change it. It doesn't work that way. When God shows up, the fire lets loose, the soap gets going, things change. 
And we have to be ready to embrace change if we're going to stay in the race. I want to move on to a different passage. Pick up with me in, in verse 8. Let's st- we'll start with verse 7 and kind of continue down through verse 10. He says, since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But they're saying, well, how do we need to return to you? How have we left you? We're still here. We're worshiping you. We bring you sacrifices. Yeah, you say you don't like them because they're lame or whatever. But and he says, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you ask, how, how do we rob you? It says, by not making the payments of 10% and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Br- bring the whole, bring the full 10% into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. See, see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. So here's the dynamic. The, the people are, it's hard times. There are hard times that are going on. They're struggling, okay? And they're, they're thinking, okay, you know what? I look in, I got so much grain, I got this many animals, etc. I don't know if I'm going to make it all the way to the next harvest season. So, so I, I just got to hold on to what I got, and God can have this little piece over here. And God says, well, you're robbing me. You know, and, and they're operating out of a scarcity mentality. That the more I give to God, the less I have. God's trying to get them to adopt an abundance mentality. The more you trust me, the more you're going to have. The, 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 more, the, great, the, the more abundant your life is going to be. You know, and, and this is a very appropriate word for us today. I mean, you know, the, the statistics show across the board that evangelicals, the ones who believe that this is the Word of God, it's our life manual on how to live before God in faithfulness. And we read passages that talk about giving the tithe or 10%, and yet across the board, the average evangelical gives under 3%. I had a guy on the way out today told me, he said, you know, uh, I'm just under conviction. And he said, you know, come January 1st, I'm going to start giving the tithes for the first time in my life. I don't know if he's talked to his wife yet, but that's what he told me. We're going to do this, give a tithe beginning the first of the year. Here's what I want you to see in this passage. It's just extraordinary. So God says, test me in this. Test me in this. You're operating out of a scarcity mentality. Just try the abundant mentality. See what I do. Just just test me in this. And and one of the things I think that you and I need to understand, if we're going to be people who get in the race and stay in the keep the pace and, 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 and do those kind of things, if we're going to really sustain spiritual commitment, let God open up the doors and do the greater works that, Je- that can, Jesus can use to glorify the Father, one of the things that you and I have to do is we have to be ready to try. I mean, really try. It's not the kind of thing where we just plop a card down on the altar and we walk out the door and we think we're done. Because we, we live, we live in, a, in, an, in an era where as believers we think just to feel it is to have accomplished it. But biblically, that doesn't have anything close to what faith is about. You know, just because we, we felt a, a twinge of conviction 
or there was a sense of exhilaration in presenting our prayer request. That doesn't mean anything's really happened yet. Biblically, faith is the kind of trust that produces faithfulness. It's something that we do. It's not necessarily something that we just feel. And, and part of this is we just have to try. You know, Jesus said, ask, and it shall be given to you. We, we just need to ask God to do the things in our lives that we're committing to asking him to do. And we have to really ask every day. Ask. When we're seeking for God to do things through us, to extend his kingdom, we need to seek so that we'll find. And we really need to seek. Not just, you know, and we, we are. We just need to try. And it's a marvelous thing that our God says, you know what, just test me in this. Just give it a whirl. See what I do. Sincerely pray for me to do works in you, to do works through you, and just see what happens. Just give it a try. We, we have to give it a try, an honest, sincere try. It's something we do, not just feel. One last point I want to make. Just hang in with me for a minute. I know it's getting hot in here and that kind of stuff. And the end of beginning of chapter four. Just turn over the next page to, to Malachi chapter four if you're using one of our pew Bibles. God returns to this theme of when he's going to show up. And this is what he says. He says, For indeed the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. But you, you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. What Malachi lays out for the people says there's, there's two futures that lay out ahead of us. For one, those who don't draw a line in the sand, those who let the line get washed away and never really come back to it, those who are people who are arrogant and wicked, judgment's coming. And it's not going to be a pleasant sight. There's another future that's possible. That you can experience the future. It, it, it feels like the sun coming up on a cold morning, and you can just feel the warmth of the sun as you soak it in. You know? Christina and I had the, the, the opportunity this weekend. We, we had an event in Boston on Friday night and another event in Boston on, on Saturday night. And so we just stayed in the city on, on Friday night. Uh, somebody was nice enough to let us use their place, and we stayed in the city. And, and on, on Saturday, we just went out for a long walk, and we just walked along Newberry Street. Not only got Newberry Street, that's where all the fancy shops are, right? We bought a grapefruit peeler. I think it was a buck eighty, all right? You probably could have got it at a Target for 25 cents, but we got it for a buck eighty on Newberry Street. Everything else was incredible. Anyways, but we're walking along Newberry Street. And, and on one side of the street, there's shade. On the other side of the street, the sun shines. And we got a little cold, so we've crossed over to the other side. It's amazing the impact that the sun has. You're walking over there, you're taking your uh, extra coat off, and it's just, it was just gorgeous. 
you know, they're, they're two futures. And, and part of what you and I need to realize when we're dealing with these kind of questions is that we really are dealing with something important. We're dealing with something important. The, the, and, and we need to have a sense of urgency in dealing with this. You know, and, and what happens is that spiritually, because we don't reali- really realize that God is God and all the other pieces that fit with it, we think about our, these spiritual decisions and this transformation and allowing God to do what he wants to do. We, we think about those things as something that we can put off and deal with at a later time. You know, Stephen Covey made famous the idea of the grids of the urgent and the non-urgent and the important and the unimportant, right? Some of you are familiar with that, you know, the the urgent is the stuff that's demanding for attention right now. You go home today and your hot water heater is busted and there's water running out over the floor. You're going to be on the phone this afternoon. You're going to have a plumber there. You're going to have it installed because you don't want to take a cold shower in the morning. It's urgent. You're going to deal with it right away. Some of you are going to go home this afternoon and say, boy, the garage really needs to be cleaned. Man, eh, that can wait till next week. It's important, but it just doesn't have any urgency, right? That eh, can be put off. Some of our students, you guys, maybe you have a test tomorrow. You're going to go home and study. You got a paper that's due at the end of the term? Eh, that can wait a little bit. We get in that place with our spiritual lives. There's nobody standing over us saying, do this today. Do it now. We think, well, I can just deal with that tomorrow because I got plenty to do today. And when you and I don't have urgency, the things that are the most important in our lives are things that we ignore. And Malachi's saying, you know what? Your future hangs in the balance. Your future hangs in the balance. What are you going to do about it? This, this, to me, is why the things that are a part of our lives that, are, that really relate to spiritual disciplines are so important. And, and the things I'd really highlight to you is this is why it's so important for you to be connected. Because there are going to become times when you're just tempted to procrastinate on spiritual things. And you need other people in your lives who help you maintain that sense of urgency. I got, I got a friend of mine that I've served with before. And um, she was pretty heavy, over, heavy overweight. And she lost a lot of weight. I mean, like 75 to 100 pounds. I'm just guessing. She never told me. Whatever. Just make my... A lot of weight. Then over a period of about two years, she put it almost all back on. She's lost it all again. This time, I, I don't know about the first time, this time she used Weight Watchers. Guess what she did when she lost all the weight? She went on as a part-time staff member of Weight Watchers. Do you know why? Because they weigh you when you show up for work. You show up and you put on too much weight, you're fired. I mean, there's accountability. There's a whole community saying, you want to keep working? Keep the weight off. It takes a community. That's why we need to be connected, to maintain the sense of urgency in our lives. When we think we can get out on our own and just handle it by ourselves, we're just target feed. I want to close with this thought. You know, as I started our message today, and these are the prayer cards that you guys submitted a couple of weeks ago. You know, we cited two different types of people in the scriptures. There were those, like in the days of Joshua, who said, yeah, we're going to serve God. And they put their commitment on the altar. And the next day, they put their commitment on the altar. 
And the next day, they put their commitment on the altar. And day after day after day, they put their commitment on the altar. Then a day came where they didn't put it on the altar. Maybe a couple days. Three days. No, no, we can't do that. And they put their commitment. Then weeks turned into months, into years. And they were distant from God. You know what the difference is between those guys and the Enochs and the Elijahs and the Apostles? Is they, every single day, kept putting their commitment on the altar. That, that idea should ring a bell. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross annually. Monthly? Weekly? Daily. Follow me. The only difference between the people in the days of Joshua and those who are followers of Christ today who stay in the race and keep the pace is they kept making the choice every single day. The choice that you need to make today, the choice you need to make tomorrow, and and Tuesday, Wednesday, and every single day for the rest of your life. And God says, test me in this and see if I won't open the floodgates of heaven. Let's pray together. Got a lot here. We've, we could probably come up with a list of 100 items in just a few minutes of the things that are going to challenge our commitment to truly walking with you on a daily basis. Of continuing to ask you to do things in us that you've never done before. And to do things through us that we've never let you do before. God, I pray for the resolve that we'd make that choice today. And just like the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step, I, take, I pray we take that step today. And just like a journey of a thousand miles continues with a second step and a third step and a fourth step, we take each of those steps in its own time and to watch you open the floodgates of heaven and pour out your blessings on us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.